What's going on, podcast? It is Colin of Colin's Conversations. You're probably like, wait a minute. I thought I tuned into the Colin Canel podcast. Who's this other Colin? It's still me. It's still just about all the same show, and it's still going to be great guests. But the name's a little bit shorter, easy to remember, and it's really inclusive of what I'm doing. I'm really just letting everybody in on my conversations with really interesting people. And that's not going to stop. It's going to get, actually get far more intense, and we're going to get far more interesting people. Uh, not that everybody else hasn't been interesting, but we're going to keep on stepping up the bar. And today is no different. There's going to be a quick ad, and uh, feel free to skip through it if you need to. And then you're going to learn about a great writer who fell off the horse and got right back on, but in a different way. So check it out, and let me know what you think of the new name. So uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody. Let them know who you are, uh, where you're from, and uh, just the basic origin story. Okay. Uh, My name is Glacia Kronk. I'm originally from upstate New York. I moved to Georgia in uh, 2007 uh, for a job in the in the horse industry. I uh, before I became a writer, I was a uh, trainer, rider, riding instructor, uh, professional equestrian. Um, and then I got hurt, um, fell off, and uh, had a pretty severe head injury in March of 2018, and that kind of brought my former career as a horseman to to a halt. And then after that, I started I started writing. There's a much longer story in there, but <laughs> that's all right. Let, let's uh, go back in there a little bit and break it down. So you, you were in upstate New York. What took you to Georgia? Was that just the horses that were down there, or what was in Georgia? Yeah, I, I took a job down here. And how does somebody become a horse trainer? Were you just riding horses your whole life, or is it something you were into and just threw yourself in the deep end? Oh, gracious. Um, I started riding when I was um, six years old. Um, and most, well, no, I would, I would have to say uh, virtually all uh, professional equestrians uh, come into the industry as, uh, as amateurs. They ride as children, and then they eventually end up in a position in which they are teaching other people and teaching horses. And, and that's, how, that's how professional equestrians are born. We just eventually start making money at what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what part of horse riding do you like the best? Were you doing like the obstacles or just uh, tell us about that? Um, I, uh, the last time that I was uh, teaching and training, my area of special concern was dressage, um, which is one of the three Olympic disciplines, um, <clears throat> till they officially add reining. <laughs> um, and uh, before that, I, I've been involved with breeding and training a few other like breed uh, breeds of horses, and I've also done hunter jumpers and and driving and and things like that. Gotcha. As somebody that knows very little about horse racing, that the, the, their horses in general, horse culture, the thing that I find the best whenever you know the Kentucky Derby or anything like that comes around is the names. What is the craziest horse name that you've ever heard? Gracious. Um, there was a uh, there was a, a race horse about fifteen years ago uh, whose name was Ada Towel. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> That's awesome. And how about you personally? Do you go normal names for horses? Do you go off the wall? 
Uh, generally speaking, um, all of the places uh, at which I've ever worked, um, the horses that are produced there, and, and generally speaking, just about everywhere uh, outside of the, uh, pretty much just about everywhere, horses are named for uh, for their parentage. So you just kind of get creative within, you know, whatever the names of the parents or grandparents happen happen to be. And usually it's a combination of the best bloodlines that gives you the name. Gotcha. Uh, and are, is, is there a particular type of horse that you like better than another or to, to whether to work with or just to see or anything like that? Um, if you're talking about breeds, no, there are some breeds that I have had more experience with than others. Um, would I say that I favor them over another breed? No, um, I, I'm, I'm more interested in an individual's personality um, in, instead of just saying, oh, I like that one because it belongs to that name because there's crazies in all breeds. Gotcha. <laughs> Was was there a particular breed that was easier to train or more um, adaptive to what you wanted it to do than others? Um, in general, I think that um, for better or worse, uh, Arabians tend to be some of the smartest animals, but that does not necessarily make them easier to train. Um, it just makes them easier to think, but that can go awry in, in the wrong hands, you know, in the hands of somebody that doesn't know how to deal with that sort of a thinking uh, animal. So again, like type, you know, a breed of horse, I don't really have a favorite. I always did really well with horses who were true thinkers and who were maybe a little bit, a little bit hot. <laughs> and as uh, somebody that is thinking about going into, you know, horse training or working with horses, um, what, what, uh, words of wisdom could you give somebody that's looking to go into your former career? Uh, start by mucking stalls. Start humble. You know, learn learn care first. First and foremost, care. And mucking stalls, that's uh, picking up the poop and fluffing the hay, that type of thing? That's, ex that's exactly what that is. Yeah, you cannot go anywhere. Um, in my opinion, you, you should not go anywhere in the industry without having a, a very firm grip on, on horse husbandry. So yeah, that's what I would say. And is there anything about um, owning a horse or having a horse that people just might not think of that um, you think that they should? Um, I would say uh, the two, two things. Uh, firstly, the, the, how, how particular they are about their diet and how that can go awry very quickly. But more importantly, um, I think the thing that people don't really anticipate is the cost. Um, someone who I respect very, very much coined a phrase, at least I think she was the one who coined it, and I dearly love it. Whenever anybody she knew, was, she was a, an equine veterinarian. And anytime anybody she knew who did not have a horse said, oh, I'm thinking about getting a horse, she says, okay, go into your living room, take a $100 bill light it on fire and throw it in the fireplace. Can you do that? If you cannot, do not get a horse. Gotcha, that's the sound advice. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said that your injury happened in uh, last year. How long were you in the horse business before you got hurt? Oh, gracious. Um, I was operating as a professional from about, just what year? 2001, maybe. So probably about 16, 17 years. Wow. And uh, the injury, were you thrown off a horse or what What happened? 
I was, yeah. I was, I was uh, training a horse who I uh, had ridden for a couple of years anyway. He was, he was actually being particularly good. And uh, whenever you uh, have a horse that is, that is being particularly good at basics, then that is an excellent opportunity to introduce something that's a little bit more uh, new to them. And uh, we had a, a miscommunication and he tossed me and I landed on the back of my head. And what does a horse do after that? Or are they just confused? Like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be on my back or? Uh, at that point, from, from the point of reaction, uh, the, the reaction that happens that sends a rider flying, the horse is, is just in flight mode. Um, they're, you know, it's, it's unwise to attribute too much thought to a horse. While they do think, they don't think in those terms. Um, so from the moment the horse has the reaction that ends up unseating the rider until they decide to stop, the only thing that they're thinking is that, you know, perhaps the situation is frightening and confusing. Gotcha. So you, you ended up hurting yourself. And then um, what was in the transition period, what made you go from doing that to figuring, you know what, I'm going to be a writer now. Um, I, uh, after the injury, I was, uh, left with severe headaches, um, uh, loss of, of memory, uh, no immediate term memory, uh, really short, uh, really poor short term memory, uh, basically a form of anterograde amnesia, um, I couldn't remember a conversation while I was in it. I would go to sleep, wake up the next morning. I would remember very limited things. Uh, it was very frustrating. Uh, I realized that it was a problem when I went on vacation with my family, one that we had planned well prior to me getting hurt. And uh, we came home and I realized I didn't remember any of it um, with the exception of the five to 10 photographs that I had taken, that that was the thing that helped me retrieve the memory. And uh, neurologists will tell you that there's, you know, memory problems are generally one of two things. It's, it's retention and retrieval. So basically that told us that I was having, um, you know, I was, I was doing an okay job of retaining short term, just not retrieving it. Um, whereas the immediate term was more of a retention problem. So I became very depressed when I realized that I couldn't remember things like that, you know, fun times with my family and things like that. And so I, I got, I got really depressed. I, I was not in a, in a great place psychologically. And um, so I was like, I need to, I need to pick something up that is going to kind of help me get, get my life back together. And uh, there were a few options, but what I ended up going with was, was writing fiction. And were you, before you started writing fiction, were you kind of uh, maybe like jotting notes down more than you used to to help kind of use that retention part of the brain or did you just jump right into doing stories? Um, oh gracious, no, uh, I am not a pantser when it comes to writing. Um, I can't be. Um, the uh, Honestly, the, the genesis of the whole thing is, is very difficult to talk about simply because at that point I did not have the coping mechanisms in place. And so people ask, you know, exactly, you know, how did you get started exactly? You know, how did you come up with the idea for your series? Those sorts of questions. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't have those memories. They did not stick around. I can tell you that um, 
as long as I can remember. Um, I have been a, uh, a, 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 a dedicated note taker. I have many, many, many little notebooks that are full of all my little crazy person writings and many, many uh, files on my computer, you know, that have to do with world rules and backstory and characteristics of people, you know, both physical and, and motor and, and verbal and historical. And so, you know, um, yeah, everything is written down. So the world is, is, is very, very tight. And then from there, the, the story is very tightly plotted. But then once I actually get into the writing, it's, it's stream of consciousness writing. Once I know what scene I'm, I'm in, it's not planned at all. Gotcha. And uh, like when you were in high school and uh, going through school, were you into writing or uh, did it kind of just all come to fruition after everything happened? Well, that's a funny story, actually. Um, I dropped out of school when I was in seventh grade um, to work. Uh, not, not a proud fact about me, but a fact nonetheless. So I did not attend high school. Okay. Um, I, uh, I actually always despised writing. Um, I was a math, uh, maths and sciences girl. Um, still am to this day. Don't particularly like reading fiction. Um, love reading nonfiction. Um, again, especially anything to do with sciences. But um, yeah, fiction is not really my my bag. Um, <laughs> it's a sidebar part of the uh, part of the uh, testing that I had done to check my status and my recovery uh, after the injury was uh, something called neuropsychological testing. And within that, they, they test your IQ. And uh, when, they, when they tested my IQ, uh, they ended up finding out that I have what I call an unfortunately high IQ. Retrospectively, you know, the, the, the thought, you know, the, the fact that I dropped out of school and didn't pursue, you know, higher education is, is something that kind of, I think, will always follow me around, you know, now knowing in a quantitative way what my potential could have been. But either way, yeah, I detested writing until I, until I started doing it at this point in time. Then it became therapeutic, and now I'm addicted. It's interesting that you say that, how... Uh... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you said something of what could have been had you have gone to school or whatnot. Um, but it, it seems like you, you wanted to do something. And a lot of people that do have high IQs, I mean, they're, they're not meant to be in the traditional school system. You know, I mean, there's a lot of the people that have a real high IQ, they either get in trouble or they go and do their own thing. Um, and you don't need higher education to become educated. Like you said, you like to read books about science and everything. I'm the same way. It's real hard for me to get into a story to read. I'd rather watch the movie, but if I could go learn something in 20 or 30 pages, I'll read that all day. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I, uh, I definitely fall into the do my own thing category. Uh, you know, of people that, that are sort of, yeah, the nonconformist, high, high functioning, low functioning, you know, <laughs> high intellectual function, low social function seem to go hand in hand, which is fun. And as, as a parent, some, uh, how do you feel um, as your kids get older? Are you going to push them to go towards higher education or just follow their own dreams? Or have you given, given that any thought? 
both of my children are, um, they're still very young though. They, uh, my, my daughter is, uh, is in second grade at the end of, of second grade. And, uh, she actually is attending class with the next grade up though in our state, you know, being promoted to the next grade is not something that's very easy to do, nor is it something that I would want her to do, but nonetheless, she is attending class with the upper gradesmen and she tests into the 99th percentile to her demographic. And so I feel like the indicators are there that IQ seems to be genetic um, mm -hmm. and that my kids have, uh, have inherited that from me. Um, and I've actually thought a great deal about what you're talking about. And it's very difficult um, to, you know, do, I think, what a lot of people, you know, would see as the right thing and to sort of, you know, let your kids be their own people. Um, I hope that when that time comes that I will encourage them to do, you know, at this point in time, the, the, the sum total of the conversations that I have with my kids is that what they do with their lives should have an impact, that they should seek to have an impact on the world. Whether that comes from gaining a higher education and then moving forward into a career in which they can impact the world or if they if they do that in, in some other way, be it artistic or uh altruistic. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fine with that. That's what I really want from them. I, I want them to make, to make a difference because they have that, that capacity. I mean, we all do. Some of us just <laughs> achieve that better than others, I guess. Awesome. And, uh, let's go a little bit more into, um, your actual book. You said it's a series, uh, give everybody a quick little spark notes of what, what it's all about. Okay. Um, it, the, the Clockmaker series is what we are currently in. The Clockmaker series is a collection of the Lark Hendricks novels. Uh, within, within the Lark Hendricks novels, there are going to be at least three uh, trilogies. Uh, the, the one that we're currently in right now, um, the first is called The Softwood Hour that was released back in January. Uh, the second is The Cold Clock, which was just released here in mid-May. And then the third one is coming out in the autumn. They follow uh, Lark Hendricks, who is a psychic investigator, through um, a uh, the investigation of a crime that has yielded no real evidence that is that can be investigated. Um, and I I do like to move beyond that though because. Um, Really, the the investigation and and her uh, ability to um, to participate in that investigation and the, the crime itself is is almost acting as a backdrop to the story of the protagonist. You know, Lark is really the story, and her interaction with people in the story is really the thing that's of main importance. And also the interaction between other people in the story. Re realistically, uh, the books are sort of a study of psyche and human interaction and how uh, personality uh, will impact actions and then how that will in turn impact our personality again and how our identity is wrapped up in memories and things like that. 
Gotcha. That's a lot to keep up with. Yeah, so, it is. It is. They're very. They're they're somewhat complex. Um, they're thinkers, but the uh, the 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 investigation that they are all um, involved in is the thing that you know allows the story to to keep moving uh, forward in a very interesting way. It is sort of you know the the, the box cars that that contain all of the all of the human interaction. You know, it's the thing that shuttles the. The uh, the story forward keeps it interesting. It's very 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 fast reads. Actually, I got I got the most wonderful comment from a fan today. Um, he was like he was like so I made a mistake. I sat down to read your book uh, to figuring that I would get some of the blue light out of my eyes and be able to fall asleep, and then all of a sudden it was two a.m. and I was damning your name because I had to get up in the morning. And I that's that's that is a huge compliment, you know, to, to know that I can sort of grab people by the brain and hold them hostage with my book is, is very satisfying. I mean, isn't that every author's uh, goal is to be a hostage taker in, in that sense? Yes, absolutely. That is my primary goal. I mean, a lot of people have, have asked me if, if my primary goal is to, is to, you know, make money, you know, or be rich and famous. And I mean, like anybody who's in this industry knows that like money and fame are very, very seldom attained by anyone who, who engages in this. And because this whole venture uh, was born of the desire to, you know, rehabilitate myself, you know, sort of use this act as occupational therapy, the, you know, my, my goal is to tell a good story. And then secondarily is to make sure that people read the thing, you know, making money probably isn't even tertiary, to be honest with you. I'm not really sure hundred percent where that, where that falls in, in the rank of importance, but it's, it's pretty low. And I think that's the sign of, um, I mean, a, a lot of people don't really associate writing as an art form, but I mean, a, a true artist is doing it for, like you said, the self-expression, the self-care, the mental health aspects of it. You yeah. know, you're, you're not writing 483 pages of just, you know, tr buy my book. You're, you're trying to tell a real story. You're trying to really, um, like you said, capture somebody for the whole evening. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's art for the sake of art. Um, and with an artist, you know, we, we think artist, you think you go with a canvas and paintbrush and things like that. But as a writer, what tools um, do you use or what to software do you recommend to people to um, to write a book, to keep all that organized and things like that? Um, I travel with tiny little uh, three by five composition notebooks in my back pocket at all times. So if I have a thought, I write it down because I tend to travel around my life somewhat preoccupied with the world I've created. Um, and I certainly cannot trust my brain to hang on to anything. And uh, I think that that is to a certain extent true for most people. You know, we walk through a doorway and the thought goes away. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's that's the hardware for me uh, is, is, is pen and paper all the time. Um, as far as the actual like writing process, I'm very simple. I write in Word. Um, I like Word. It suits me. It, you know, you can do a lot of things or nothing. Um, I use Grammarly for editing. I cannot overstate the importance of having good, reliable beta readers. 
um, to send your stuff to at different points in the writing process. You know, I, I have different betas for different seasons. Um, you know, I have some who I will send, you know, sort of a raw story to uh, just to get some ideas of flow and continuity and, and you know, perhaps some minor editing uh, suggestions. And then I have my, my second draft betas who tend to give me more like technical advice and, you know, micro edits and some gross, uh, you know, um, grammar and, and, and whatnot sort of thing, though that tends to be pretty tight. And then I have my final draft betas who are like grammar Nazis and they're very detail oriented and, you know, they will, they will see, you know, that period that you missed at the end of a sentence, like at the end of, you know, a line of dialogue that you just sort of read past because, I mean, let's be honest, we write the stuff. We're not able to see our own mistakes, otherwise we wouldn't make them, right? Absolutely. And where do you find all these beta readers? Um, it, they started out as being like uh, members of my family, which I don't recommend. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you have no other beta readers, then use your family, at least from the technical standpoint of like the, the, the technical standpoint from writing. Um, you know, use them to make sure that everything is constructed properly, you know, use them for, you know, spell checking and stuff like that. Because if you're using a regular spell checker, you know, that is not going to catch a form from inversion, you know, stuff like that. So, um, and, and then from there, um, I started using friends. And then beyond that, um, I, I, after I released my first book, I found some fans ultimately is, is what they were, who seemed very, very um, interested in the story and devoted to it and wanted it to be as tight as possible. And actually the, the, the fans that I now use as beta readers are my final draft readers because they're just like viciously going through the content, trying to find every technical error that they possibly can. Um, in order to make the, the book the best it can be because they, they care about it. And you kind of mentioned in there, uh, within the fans, are any of your fans pushing for uh, the stories to become, I don't know, movies or audiobooks or anything like that? I personally would love for them to be audiobooks. The feedback that I get from people all the time is that they are very cinematic. Um, I have had countless people come to me and say, oh my God, it reads like a movie. I can see it. It would make such a cool movie. I would love that or a TV show or whatever the case may be. And that's a huge compliment. Um, <laughs> and it, it would be cool. Some of the visuals in here are, are very, very nifty. Uh, but like actually executing that in a visual form, you know, I mean, it's, it's very easy to imagine when you're reading it. But the idea of executing that in a visual form in a movie uh, or a television show, I imagine would just be an enormously difficult undertaking. It's very difficult to describe unless, you know, you, you really would have to read the book to understand. Gotcha. And um, what's keeping you from making it into an audiobook? Um, resources, uh, realistically. Um, I, I submitted, you know, a um, sample to the company that hires um, uh, voiceover people uh, for Audible and and whatnot, I, I you know did the the whole profile and and uh, submitted a um, what's the word 
a, uh, a script, you know, a sample of the work. Uh, but when I did it, it was the first book. It had not been released yet. Um, and people who do voiceover work uh, generally tend not to want to take chances on that. And so the only way that you can actually get an, an, an audio uh, book done at that stage of your work is out of pocket. You're basically hiring voice actors to, to do your stuff. And um, at that point, and honestly, at this point, still, uh, I'm not ready to put money into this. I have put virtually zero dollars into it. I do my own covers. I, I do, you know, all of my own formatting. I don't have an editor. I don't pay proofreaders. My betas are unpaid. Um, and that's because, you know, like I, I, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, it is somewhat occupational therapy and it's self-indulgent. So, you know, perhaps at some point I will be willing to sort of outsource, you know, marketing or, or something like that. Um, but at this point, yeah, I just, I can't afford to afford it. I totally understand that one. Um, one thing I do always push people towards is in today's world, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a good talking voice. You're comfortable, you know the story, you have people that know the story um, to, to self-publish one to just read a couple pages every day and keep it recorded, you know, set, set yourself up, put the kids to bed, go in the closet and just read, read it out and put it all together. Um, free. We both like free and, you know, kind of as it could also possibly be a whole nother type of therapy for you of let me go through and read it out and do that and then figure out a whole new angle that you might've not taken it because you hadn't approached it in that way. That's an interesting thought, um, but and and for for most people, I'm sure that that would be an an excellent uh, way to execute, you know, the next step of exposure. But um, after my uh, my head injury, I was left with a severely limited ability to read, especially to read aloud. Or that was something that was never an issue for me. That's definitely one of the uh, handicaps that I have sort of carried carried forward. Uh, I couldn't read and track a story if you uh, if you held a gun to my head. Um, and I, I couldn't do it either if there's a gun to my head. Without the gun, I might be able to take care of it. <laughs> no, I totally understand. And I, I didn't really think about that way. But, um, you know, even if it's not you, like, like you said, you have a lot of fans, you have a lot of beta readers, kind of throw it out as a contest, you know read this chapter or read that chapter and you know the winner gets a free copy of the next book or something yeah, just, that's idea. just another way to kind of keep keep the uh the fans interested and also you know create a new type of medium for you where if you have a whole bunch of fans reading things every once in a while when you go on social media say oh this is uh, such and such from arkansas reading blah 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 you know just another way to get the word out there in a more organic fashion yeah, that's a cool idea. I do love doing giveaways. Uh, that is that is definitely a thing of mine. I, I adore giving away signed paperbacks. You know, I find that's a pretty big, pretty big motivator for people. That's a it's a good mobilizer. Put it that way. Absolutely. And um, let's wrap this up a little bit because I know you have eighteen other meetings to do this evening. <laughs> um, the last two things that I want to touch on are. Um, you mentioned you're doing this all out of pocket. You're doing it for therapy. You're self-published. You're self-edited. Yeah. What recommendations do you have for those that are looking to 
do a similar thing. Maybe they don't have the same exact backstory, but they want to get into writing. They want to self-publish. What do you think they should do from there? I would say um, that you have to, even if it is recreational, you have to hold yourself uh, accountable to actually doing something. I myself insist to myself that I write a thousand words a night. Um, and I highly, I, I would highly recommend that to anybody, you know, whether it's a thousand or 500 or a page or whatever the case, you know, making sure that you are sitting down and making yourself do it a little bit every night that makes it become habit. And even if you write something that's, you know, not good, you can either go back and fix it, or maybe you've developed some backstory, or maybe you've learned something by figuring out, you know, what doesn't work, but you still sat down at the end of the day or whenever and made yourself do it and not only likely improved your craft, but, you know, also taught yourself how to, you know, basically go to work, um, you know, while still obviously, hopefully keeping it, keeping it fun. <laughs> it's, it's funny you said that. I listen to uh, the Joe Rogan podcast, like almost every day. I love Joe Rogan. He's like the, the man's Oprah. Mm -hmm. but he has a thing. He does a lot of stand-up comedy, and every day he makes himself sit in front of his computer for an hour with no YouTube, no nothing, just a blank notepad, and just writes jokes for an hour every day. And like you said, it's his way of having that that uh, just work ethic of yeah. this is work. I'm going to perfect my craft, and even if I only come up with one joke, and even if it's shit, at least I sat down and I wrote every day. Yeah, absolutely. It's accountability to self. Absolutely. I'm all about self-accountability. That's how I know I'm getting old. <laughs> and uh, I, I gave you the heads up on this one, which I don't always give everybody the heads up. But the way that I like to finish every interview is with the digital soapbox. You get up to the one minute, tell everybody either uh, where to get your book, give them inspiration, whatever you want to leave everybody on. Okay. Um, well, everybody can get my books on Amazon. Uh, but that's not really the thing that's important to me. If I'm going to step up onto a soapbox, uh, I would actually really like to address the industry. Um, I have found a lot of people within the indie selfie author industry who are very, very self-serving in what they do. And they're very poor at integrating, interacting, and networking with other people within the industry. And when I entered into it, I was like, oh, this must be how it's done. And so I engaged in that way and was immediately dissatisfied. So I was like, forget this. I'm going to interact with individuals. And I started hunting people. And I found, you know, four or five people who I have meaningful, collaborative, productive, friendly relationships with. Um, and that is very fulfilling. And so I would encourage people who are writing or who want to become writers and are in that indie selfie industry to form a pack, form a tribe, something small where you guys can help each other, you know, work and help each other market and, you know, sort of share, share an audience. I like it. <clears throat> um, if you need help with your pack with marketing or anything like that, let me know. I'll be happy to help you out, give you any tips that you need. Um, I'd also like to have you on for another episode. One of these days we'll actually get like cameras and full technology and all of that working. Amazing. Yeah, that, that sounds like fun. I'd like that. Um, but like she said, her stuff is available on Amazon. 
Um, where can they find you social media wise? I am on Facebook. I have two different uh, pages on Facebook. One is for the Lark Hendricks novel series. The other is me as an author. Um, I'm the only Glacia Cronk. If you search me, you'll probably find my personal profile and and my uh, my professional page. Um, I am on Twitter, but I'm a Twitter failure. I am on Instagram, but I'm also an Instagram failure. Um, but I mean, people can come and follow. I do post from time to time. It's just that I don't really have um, any any followers. Uh, I also have a profile on Amazon. You can follow me there. You'll get all sorts of updates about when I'm putting out books and things like that. But Facebook is kind of my jam. That's that's where you'll that's where you'll find me every day. You know, doing fun and funny stuff. So I don't like to hard sell. So my my pages, with the exception of like the two to three weeks around a release. There's no, there's no hard selling. There's, there's very little soft selling, to be honest. They're good fun pages. You're not going to like it and follow it and end up being like, oh my God, what is this on my feed? Every day she's trying to hawk a book at me. Like we just have a good time. Absolutely. And see, you call yourself a social media failure, but you, you have the essence of what everybody needs to be doing figured out where, like, like you said, nobody gives a shit if you're like every day, buy my book, buy my book. It's only $3.99 today. It's only $2.99 today. Like nobody cares. If you're if you're making somebody understand who you are as the author, you've won. Yep. That's my goal. You're killing it. If I could help you in any way, let me know and uh, we'll have you on again sometime. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. I know that I wish that we had more than 36 minutes and 15 seconds to talk, but that just means she will be on for another episode, hopefully sooner than later. Let everybody know that this is the best podcast in the world. Leave a five-star review, four-star, maybe even a one-star if you think it sucks. Either way, I'd love to know your feedback either in the iTunes or wherever you're listening to, or just let me know, colin at colincanhelp.com. Send me a message. Let me know how to make this podcast better or let me know what guests to get on for the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast would not be anything without you. That's right. Look in the mirror. You. So until the next one, thanks again.